0: Sometimes life asks for more than we can possibly deliver. Work grinds on, but your energy is long gone. Needs pile up, but you feel like caving in. Opportunities multiply, but you are divided. The line of problems waiting on your attention grows longer, but your patience gets shorter. Your schedule is jammed, but your heart is alarmingly empty. Maybe that's how things are for you just now. You've spent your emotional accounts into near bankruptcy. You're way over your limits. You've maxed out your soul. Foreclosure on your identity has begun. I've seen it happen to caregivers who tend night and day, day and night, week after week, even year after year, to a loved one with chronic illness or a crippling condition. They feel like they can't let down their guard even for a minute because after all, this mother, father, daughter, son, husband, wife depends on them depends on them sometimes quite literally for the next breath, or looks to them for the only shafts of light they will see in an otherwise dark and dreary place. That kind of caregiving can be exhausting. I've seen the challenges of parenting drain down a parent's reserves all that juggling schedules, there can be sleepless nights strung together too, brought on by ear infections or teething or stomach bugs or nightmares or whatever. When our little girl, Amanda, was a little girl, I would walk the house with her in my arms, bouncing her up and down because it's the only way she would be quiet. All night, it seemed, bouncing that little girl in my arms around the house. Even when you're young, and thank goodness most parents are young, that will wear you out. But we learned that the sleepless nights don't stop, um, do they? Even when children get to be teenagers, uh, you're awake. Where are they? Who are they with? What are they doing? Why aren't they home? Parenting... Parenting can be a, a drain. I, I've watched it happen over and over again to, with people that I care about. Who's picking up whom? Where and when? Do we have the right clothes and shoes for the next thing that's happening? Is this the day I said I'd take snacks? Is this our week to volunteer at the concession stand? I'm simply saying caregiving, parenting, they can be exhausting. And everyday life can be, too, especially when you live it in high gear the way most of us do. In today's workplace, I think the prevailing expectation is produce more with less. The pace and pressure reduce people to husks and shells. Work leaves them like suits on a mannequin. They look the part, but truth is they're hard and cold and numb. I don't need to spend a lot of time on this. You know what it's like for life to ask for more than you can give. Dr. David McBride is the narrator of Sally Vickers' novel, The Other Side of You. He's a psychiatrist whose life is being changed by one of his patients. Her name is Elizabeth. Among other things, she has helped him to understand, as he put it, that age and disease and death may destroy our physical being, but it is other people who get inside us and damage our hearts and minds. Other people get inside us and damage our hearts and minds because they they use us up. And we find ourselves singing that Peggy Lee song, Is This All There Is? So most A's, Many of us put on our uniform of responsibility, our practiced facade of can-do optimism, our masks of habit, our armor of protection, and we go out and do what we have to do. I'm starting this way because I want you to know that I know that there are more people than you imagine who worry and wonder how long they can cope with all the demands respond to all the pressures, meet all the expectations they feel bearing down on them. I want you to know that I know that people feel that way. Maybe you do. But even more, I want you to know that it doesn't have to be that way. There's this remarkable prayer in Ephesians 3 that Anne read for us a few moments ago. Listen to some of the lines from that prayer may God grant you to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner person. May Christ dwell in your hearts through faith. May you be rooted and grounded in love. May you have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. May you be filled with with all the fullness of God. And I want to be sure that as we listen to this prayer this morning, that you and I not turn this prayer into another list of expectations for us to meet and another set of demands for us to shoulder. We'll mishear this prayer if we turn it into a kind of holy to-do list. If what we take from this prayer is God wants me to be stronger, God wants me to be more loving, God wants me to do more and give more, no matter how sick and tired I am of being sick and tired, the prayer is not meant to put more burdens on us. It is meant to lift burdens from our backs. And so I would encourage those of us in the room who have a tendency to turn even God's best gifts into a set of coulda, woulda, shouldas, I would encourage us to resist that temptation. There's nothing in this prayer that wants us to turn it into a self-help project or a self-improvement regimen. It doesn't tell us to make ourselves more loving. It tells us how much God loves us. And there's no better expression of that love than the words of John 3.16. I can't remember the first time I heard John 3.16. I must have been six or seven years old just after my parents started going back to church. I can't remember the first time, but I know after I heard it the first time, it seemed like it was the text that got read in church every other week. Every other week, we were back to John 3.16, and in the church I grew up in, I must have heard it hundreds of times in the King James Version. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The day I made my profession of faith, I was eight years old, and I Live two doors up the street from the pastor of our church. I got home from church on a Sunday afternoon, made my way two doors down to my pastor's house. My buddy, Tony, he and I were the same age. He was my pastor's son. Met me at the door and said, we can't play football till after lunch. And Ken said, I don't think guy's here to talk about football right now. So we went in the living room and Ken took John 3:16 and said read it this way. For God so loved guy that he gave his only begotten son that if guy would believe in him guy would not perish but have everlasting life. I can still feel the surge of joy I felt I was a roly-poly kid, but I skipped all the way up the hill to my parents' house. John three sixteen: For God so loved the world. When I was a child, I only understood a fraction of that verse, and I'm still learning about what it means. You know, Martin Luther said that it is the kind of the kind of verse that. Uh, a mouse could drown in, but it's also the kind an elephant could swim in. Uh, For God so loved the world. I, I cherish that word, so. For God so loved the world. I hope you have at least one other person in your life for whom it's not enough for you to say, I love you. I hope it only feels complete if you say, I love you so much. I love you so, so much. For God so loved the world. You know that that word, world, could better be translated cosmos. This says For God so loved the cosmos. God so loves the universe. That means there is not a corner of space. There's not a pocket of the universe which is untouched by God's love. The great expanse of everything that is is filled with God's active, self-giving love. God lavishes love on everyone and everything, every human being, old and young, men and women, red and yellow, black and white, rich and poor, male and female, friend and enemy, Christian, Jew, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, atheist, seeker. There is not a person in the world whom God does not love and no one whom God does not want to welcome into God's own tender heart. God so loves the cosmos and so loves you and me. I'm still trying to catch up with that kind of love, aren't you? Sometimes I have a hard time loving the corner of my neighborhood. Sometimes my love has a hard time getting beyond the county I live in. So this is stretching me. God so loves the world. And the clearest, most compelling demonstration of God's love is Jesus. For God so loved the world that God gave Jesus to live with us to die for us, to be raised for our salvation. And then John 3.17 provides an important commentary about this vast love of God. It says, God didn't send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. If at any time in your life you feel condemned, It is because you have forgotten how much God loves you. God is not on the side of condemnation. God is on the side of a vast, welcoming love. I wonder if you know uh, the ministry of Father Greg Boyle, (coughs) Roman Catholic priest who's active uh, in the inner city of Los Angeles. Uh, Greg Boyle is a Jesuit priest who has for many years now been pouring out his life in the ghettos of that city to convince gang members that God loves them. Uh, he has created what he calls homeboy industries, uh, where gang members have been put to work in businesses they have helped to create. They silk screen print homeboy t-shirts, and they operate a bakery. They paint signs. There are amazing things happening in homeboy industries among gang members that Greg Boyle and others are convincing about God's love. And one of the things Greg does is when a member of his community ends up on the wrong side of prison bars, Greg goes to visit them. And one day, Greg Boyle went to visit a 15-year-old gang member named Rigo, who'd been sent to Camp Page, a juvenile detention facility outside the city of Los Angeles. Rigo was Catholic, and he was, despite the fact that he was in prison, about to take his first communion, and Boyle was there to lead the service. They were in the gym, kind of makeshift sanctuary. They were waiting on the other teenagers who were going to take First Communion to arrive. And Boyle asked Rigo about his family. And specifically, he asked about Rigo's father. And here's what Rigo said about his father. He said, my father is a heroin addict. And he's never really been part of my life. He used to always beat me. In fact, he's in prison right now, barely even lived with us. And then a painful story flooded out of this 15-year-old boy. He said, I think I was in the fourth grade. I came home. I got sent home in the middle of the day from school. I was in some kind of trouble. can't remember what. When I got home, my father was there. He was hardly ever there, but he was there that day. And my dad said, why'd they send you home? And because my dad always beat me, I said, if I tell you, you promise you won't hit me? He said, I'm your father. Of course I'm not going to hit you. So I told him. And then Rigo, standing there in the prison gym, started to cry. And soon he was rocking back and forth and flailing at the top, uh, flailing his arms around and wailing at the top of his lungs. Boyle put his arms around him, and the boy continued to tell the story. He said, of course I'm not going to hit you. I'm I'm your father. But instead, he picked up a pipe. And he beat me with a pipe. He beat me with a pipe. When Rigo calmed down, Boyle said, Well, what about your mom? And then Rigo pointed across the big gym to a tiny woman standing by the door. That's her over there. There's no one like her. I've been locked up more than a year and a half. She comes to see me every Sunday. You know how many buses she takes every Sunday to see my sorry self? And then he started to cry just as ferociously as he'd been crying when he was telling the story about his father's beating him. It took him a while to catch his breath, and finally he was able to speak again, and he said through his tears, My mama... Takes seven buses. She takes seven buses. Imagine to come see me. You know already that God is like Rigo's tender, determined, forgiving mother. Sure, Rigo had done bad things. His life was far from perfect, but she was his mother. And she loved him no matter what he did. And she did whatever she could, whatever it cost her, to remind her son that he was not alone, that he was not, after all, a sorry self, and would always be her boy. And I want you to know that like God, like her, God does whatever it takes to persuade us that we are loved just as we are. God holds nothing back to convince us that we are God's beloved sons and daughters. When I read the book, Tattoos of the Heart, in which Greg Boyle tells Rigo's story, I was surprised to read, after he told that story, that Greg Boyle admitted that it was difficult for him, a Catholic priest committed to helping others experience God's love. He admitted that sometimes it was difficult for him to believe that God loved him. He said, sometimes I feel like the arms of God reach out to embrace me, but I'm just beyond the reach of God's embrace. Do you know the struggle that he describes? Believing with all your heart that God loves the world, that God loves everybody, but when God's arms stretch out to embrace you, you feel just beyond the reach of God's embrace. Do you, you know how that feels? Like somehow you must be an exception, you must be one of God's particularly hard cases. Maybe you remember that play from many years ago called The Morning After the Miracle. It was written by William Gibson, and it's about Ann Sullivan, uh, that remarkable teacher who helped the brilliant Helen Keller get unlocked from her isolation by teaching her sign language. And after that miracle of Hill- Helen's transformation, Anne Sullivan went back to her home went back to her relationship with her husband and learned that he was jealous of all the time she had given to care for Helen. She wanted to get back. Anne wanted to get back in the center of his affection. She wanted them to be able to rebuild their lives. The jealousy got in the way. And one day, in utter frustration, Anne asked her husband, Will you love me as I am if I change enough? Will you love me as I am if I change enough? I know that sentence doesn't make any sense intellectually, but emotionally we know what that feels like. And some of us have that question for God. Will you love me as I am if I change enough? God's love embraces the whole cosmos. Every part of it, every person in it. That includes you and me. And so this feeling we have that somehow we've been left out, excluded, that, that's not the truth that our minds tell us. We know better, but we don't know better. And that's why I loop back from time to time to that phrase that Paul uses in this beautiful prayer we're listening to today. Paul says, I pray that you will have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and height and breadth and depth. The length, the height, the breadth, and the depth. You hear the vastness of it? The length, the height, the breadth, the depth. And to know the love of God which surpasses knowledge." That last phrase, that you will know what surpasses knowledge, helps me helps me to let my knowledge of God's love descend into my heart. Because that's where we know what we can't possibly know. That's where we comprehend what is too vast to comprehend figuring out how and why and how much God loves us isn't a matter for the mind it's a matter for the heart and Paul says this is the great mystery it's a thing of length and height and breadth and depth and you and I are caught up in it we experience it even when we can't understand it we know it even though we can't know it. As you know, I teach undergraduates through the week. Well, I'm in a classroom with undergraduates. And I'm I'm offering them something and they may or may not be learning anything. Anyway, I'm in the classroom with undergraduates and I don't know how much I'm teaching them but i know that they are they are teaching me and they are teaching me because as i look at them try to make their way through young adulthood to the other side of college and whatever awaits them on the other side i see the questions written all over their hearts not the questions written in their minds, those we try to deal with in the classroom, I see the questions in their hearts. And they help me to remember that those questions are in all of our hearts. The questions are, am I loved? Do I belong? They're helping me keep these questions fresh and alive. And the other day after class, One of my students, a young African-American boy. I say boy, he's 17. He's at school early. His name is Noah. Noah came up to me after class and said, I've heard you have cancer. I said, I do. He said, "I, I heard that it's incurable. I said, it is. He said, well, why are you why are you here with us? And I didn't want to say, well, I, I need a job. But, <laughs> and, and I said, well, you know, it, it, I, I love teaching and all that. He said, so what's the most important thing you have to teach us? What's the most important thing you have to teach us? And I thought about what I was going to say to you this Sunday. Here's the most important thing I think we have to teach each other. God loves you right now, unconditionally, completely, gladly. And God wants you to have the life God sent Jesus to give you. That's the most important thing I have to teach. It's the most important thing we have to teach each other. Remember that. You are swept up, held in a love you can't understand, but you can experience.